Chapter Two, Part One of *The Guns of Shiloh*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Guns of Shiloh* by Joseph A. Altschiller. Chapter Two: The Mountain Lights, Part One. When Dick left the balloon, it was nearly night. Hundreds of campfires lighted up the hills about him, but beyond their circle the darkness enclosed everything. He still felt the sensations of one who had been at a great height and who had seen afar. That rim of southern campfires was yet in his mind, and he wondered why the northern commander allowed them to remain week after week so near the capital. He was fully aware, because it was common talk, that the army of the Union had now reached great numbers, with a magnificent equipment, and with four to one, should be able to drive the southern force away. Yet McClellan delayed. Dick obtained a short leave of absence and walked to a campfire, where he knew he would find his friend, George Warner. Sergeant Whitley was there, too, showing some young recruits how to cook without waste, and the two gave the boy a welcome that was both inquisitive and hearty. "'You've been up in the balloon,' said Warner. "'It was a rare chance.' "'Yes,' replied Dick with a laugh. I left the world, and it is the only way in which I wish to leave it for the next sixty or seventy years. It was a wonderful sight, George, and not the least wonderful thing in it was the campfires of the southern army, burning down there towards Bull Run. "'Burning where they ought not to be,' said Whitley. No gulf was yet established between commissioned and non-commissioned officers in either army. "'Little Mac may be a great organizer, as they say, but you can keep on organizing and organizing until it's too late to do what you want to do.' "'It's a sound principle that you lay down, Mr. Whitley,' said Warner in his precise tones. "'In fact, it may be reduced to a mathematical formula. "'Delay is always a minus quantity, which may be represented by Y. "'Achievement is represented by X, and consequently when you have achievement hampered by delay, "'you have X minus Y, which is an extremely doubtful quantity, often amounting to failure.' "'I travel another road in my reckoning,' said Whitley. "'I don't know anything about X and Y, but I guess you and me, George, come to the same place.' It's been a full six weeks since Bull Run, and we haven't done a thing. Whitley, despite their difference in rank, could not yet keep from addressing the boys by their first names. But they took it as a matter of course, in view of the fact that he was so much older than they, and vastly their superior in military knowledge. Dick, continued the sergeant, what was it you was saying about a cousin of yours from the same town in Kentucky being out there in the southern army? He's certainly there, replied Dick, if he wasn't killed in the battle, which I feel couldn't have happened to a fellow like Harry. We're from the same little town in Kentucky, Pendleton. He's descended straight from one of the greatest Indian fighters, borderers, and heroes the country down there ever knew, Henry Ware, who afterwards became one of the early governors of the state. And I'm descended from Henry Ware's famous friend, Paul Cotter, who in his time was the greatest scholar in all the West. Henry Ware and Paul Cotter were like the old Greek friends, Damon and Pythias. Harry and I are proud to have their blood in our veins. Besides being cousins, there are other things to make Harry and me think a lot of each other. Oh, he's a grand fellow, even if he is on the wrong side. Dick's eyes sparkled with enthusiasm as he spoke of the cousin and comrade of his childhood. The chances of war bring about strange situations, or at least I have heard so, said Warner. Now, Dick, if you were to meet your cousin face to face on the battlefield with a loaded gun in your hand, what would you do? I'd raise that gun, take deliberate aim at a square foot of air about thirty feet over his head, and pull the trigger. But your duty to your country tells you otherwise. Before you is a foe trying to destroy the Union. You have come out armed to save that Union. Consequently, you must fire straight at him and not at the air. 
in order to reduce the number of our enemies. One enemy where there are so many would not count for anything in the total. Your arithmetic will show you that Harry's percentage in the Southern Army is so small that it reaches the vanishing point. If I can borrow from you, George, X equals Harry's percentage, which is nothing, Y equals the value of my hypothetical opportunity, which is nothing, then X plus Y equals nothing, which represents the whole affair, which is nothing, that is, worth nothing to the Union. Hence, I have no more obligation to shoot Harry if I meet him than he has to shoot me. Well spoken, Dick, said Sergeant Whitley. Some people, I reckon, can take duty too hard. If you have one duty, and another and bigger one comes along right to the same place, you ought to tend to the bigger one. I'd never shoot anybody that was a heap to me, just because he was one of three or four hundred thousand who was on the other side. I've never thought much of that old Roman father, I forget his name, who had his son executed just because he wasn't doing exactly right. There was never a rule that oughtn't to have exceptions under extraordinary circumstances. "'If you can establish the principle of exceptions,' replied the young Vermonter very gravely, "'I will allow Dick to shoot in the air when he meets his cousin in the height of battle. "'But it is a difficult task to establish it. "'And if it fails, Dick, according to all rules of logic and duty, "'must shoot straight at his cousin's heart.' "'The other two looked at Warner and saw his left eyelid droop slightly. "'A faint twinkle appeared in either eye, and then they laughed. "'I reckon that Dick shoots high in the air,' said the sergeant. Dick, after a pleasant hour with his friends, went back to Colonel Newcomb's quarters, where he spent the entire evening writing dispatches at dictation. He was hopeful that all this writing portended something, but more days passed, and despite the impatience of both army and public, there was no movement. Stories of confused and uncertain fighting still came out of the West, but between Washington and Bull Run there was perfect peace. The summer passed. Autumn came and deepened. The air was crisp and sparkling the leaves turning into glowing reds and yellows and browns began to fall from the trees the advancing autumn contained the promise of winter soon to come the leaves fell faster and sharp winds blew bringing with them chill rains little mac or the young napoleon as many of his friends loved to call him continued his preparations and despite all the urgings of president and congress would not move his fatal defect now showed in all its destructiveness to him the enemy always appeared threefold his natural size. Reliable scouts brought back the news that the southern troops at Manassas, a full two months after their victory there, numbered only forty thousand. The northern commander issued statements that the enemy was before him with one hundred and fifty thousand soldiers. He demanded that his own forces should be raised to nearly a quarter of a million men and nearly five hundred cannon before he could move. The veteran, Scott, full of triumphs and honors, but feeling himself out of place in his old age, went into retirement. McClellan, now in sole command, still lingered and delayed, while the South, making good use of precious months, gathered all her forces to meet him or whomsoever came against her. Youth chafed most against the long waiting. It seemed to Dick and his mathematical Vermont friend that time was fairly wasting away under their feet, and the wise sergeant agreed with them. The weather had grown so cold now that they built fires for warmth as well as cooking, and the two youths sat with Sergeant Whitley one cold evening in late October before a big blaze. Both were tanned deeply by wind, sun, and rain, and they had grown uncommonly hardy, but the wind that night came out of the northwest, and it had such a sharp edge to it that they were glad to draw their blankets over their backs and shoulders. Dick was rereading a letter from his mother, a widow who lived on the outskirts of Pendleton. It had come that morning, and it was the only one that had reached him since his departure from Kentucky. But she had received another that he had written to her directly after the Battle of Bull Run, 
She wrote of her gratitude because Providence had watched over him in that dreadful conflict, all the more dreadful because it was friend against friend, brother against brother. The state, she said, was all in confusion. Everybody suspected everybody else. The Southerners were full of victory, the Northerners were hopeful of victory yet to come. Colonel Kenton was with the Southern force under General Buckner, gathered at Bowling Green in that state, but his son, her nephew Harry, was still in the east with Beauregard. She had heard that the troops of the West and Northwest were coming down the Ohio and Mississippi in great numbers, and people expected hard fighting to occur very soon in western and southern Kentucky. It was all very dreadful, and a madness seemed to have come over the land, but she hoped that Providence would continue to watch over her dear son. Warner and the sergeant knew that the letter was from Dick's mother, but they had too much delicacy to ask him questions. The boy folded the sheets carefully and returned them to their place in the inside pocket of his coat. Then he looked for a while thoughtfully into the blaze and the great bed of coals that had formed beneath. As far as one could see to right and left, like fires, burned. But the night remained dark with promise of rain, and the chill wind out of the northwest increased in vigor. The words, just read for the fifth time, had sunk deep in his mind, and he was feeling the call of the west. "'My mother writes,' he said to his comrades, "'that the Confederate general, Buckner, whom I know, "'is gathering a large force around Bowling Green "'in the southern part of our state, "'and the fighting is sure to occur soon "'between that town and the Mississippi. "'An officer named Grant has come down from Illinois, "'and he is said to be pushing the Union troops forward "'with a lot of vigor. "'Sergeant, you're up on Army affairs. "'Do you know this man, Grant?' "'Sergeant Whitley shook his head. "'Never heard of him,' he replied. "'Like as not, he's one of the officers "'who resigned from the Army after the Mexican War. "'There was so little to do then, "'and so little chance of promotion "'that a lot of them quit to go into business. "'I suppose they'll all be coming back now.' "'I want to go out there,' said Dick. "'It's my country, and the Westerners at least are acting. "'But look at our Army here. "'Bull Run was fought the middle of summer. "'Now it's nearly winter, and nothing has been done. "'We don't get out of sight of Washington.' If I can get myself sent west, I'm going. And I'm going with you, said Warner. Me too, said the sergeant. I know that Colonel Newcomb's eyes are turning in that direction, continued Dick. He's a war horse, he is, and he'd like to get into the thick of it. You're his favorite aide, said the calculating young Vermonter. Can't you sow those western seeds in his mind and keep on sowing them? The fact that you're from this western battleground will give more weight to what you say. You do this, and I'll wager that within a week the colonel will induce the president to send the whole regiment to the Mississippi. "'Can you reduce your prediction to a mathematical certainty?' asked Dick, a twinkle appearing in his eye. "'No, I can't do that,' replied Warner, with an answering twinkle. "'But you're the very fellow to influence Colonel Newcomb's mind. I'm a mathematician, and I work with facts. But you have the glowing imagination that conduces to the creation of facts.' "'Big words, grand words,' said the sergeant. "'Never let Colonel Newcomb forget the West,' continued Warner, not noticing the interruption. "'Keep it before him all the time. Hint that there can be no success along the Mississippi without him and his regiment.' "'I'll do what I can,' promised Dick faithfully, and he did much. Colonel Newcomb had already formed a strong attachment for this zealous and valuable young aide, and he did not forget the words that Dick said on every convenient occasion about the West.' He made urgent representations that he and his regiment be sent to the relief of the struggling northern forces there, and he contrived also that these petitions should reach the president. One day the order came to go, but not to St. Louis, where Halleck, now in command, was. Instead, they were to enter the mountains of West Virginia and Kentucky, and help the mountaineers who were loyal to the Union. 
If they accomplished that task with success, they were to proceed to the greater theater in western Kentucky and Tennessee. It was not all they wished, but they thought it far better than remaining at Washington, where it seemed that the army would remain indefinitely. Colonel Newcomb, who was sitting in his tent, bending over maps with his staff, summoned Dick. "'You are a Kentuckian, my lad,' he said, "'and I thought you might know something about this region into which we are going.' "'Not much, sir,' replied Dick. "'My home is much further west, in a country very different, both in its own character and that of its people. But I have been in the mountains two or three times, and I may be of some help as a guide.' "'I'm sure you will do your best,' said Colonel Newcomb. "'By the way, that young Vermont friend of yours, Warner, is to be on my staff also, and it is very likely that you and he will go on many errands together.' "'Can't we take Sergeant Whitley with us sometimes?' asked Dick boldly. "'So you can,' replied the Colonel, laughing a little. "'I have noticed that man, and I have a faint suspicion that he knows more about war than any of us civilian officers.' "'It's our task to learn as much as we can from these old regulars,' said a Major Hertford, a man of much intelligence and good humor, who, previous to the war, had been a lawyer in a small town. Alan Hertford was about twenty-five and of fine manner and appearance.' "'Well spoken, Major Hertford,' said the thoughtful miner, Colonel Newcomb. "'Now, Dick, you can go, and remember that we are to start for Washington early in the morning and take a train there for the north. It will be the duty of Lieutenant Warner and yourself, as well as others, to see that our men are ready to the last shoe for the journey.' Dick and Warner were so much elated that they worked all that night, and they did not hesitate to go to Sergeant Whitley for advice or instruction. At the first spear of dawn the regiment marched away in splendid order from Arlington to Washington, where the train that was to bear them to new fields and unknown fortunes was ready. It was a long train of many coaches, as the regiment numbered seven hundred men, and it also carried with it four guns mounted on trucks. The coaches were all of primitive pattern. The soldiers were to sleep on the seats, and their arms and supplies were heaped in the aisles. It was a cold, drizzling day of closing autumn, and the capital looked sodden and gloomy. Cameron, the Secretary of War, came to see them off and to make the customary prediction concerning their valor and victory to come. But he was a cold man, and he was repellent to Dick, used to more warmth of temperament. Then, with a ringing of bells, a heave of the engine, a great puffing of smoke, and a mighty rattling of wheels, the train drew out of Washington and made its noisy way toward Baltimore. Dick and Warner were on the same seat. It was only forty miles to Baltimore, but their slow train would be perhaps three hours in arriving. So they had ample opportunity to see the country, which they examined with the curious eyes of youth. But there was little to see. The last leaves were falling from the trees under the early winter rain. Bare boughs and brown grass went past their windows, and the fields were deserted. The landscape looked chill and sullen. End of chapter 2, part 1